Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. This is Money and Me, where we read the world through the eyes of seasoned investors. I'm going to talk about blank checks today. Not the kind that you're thinking about, uh, the kind associated with SPACs. They're special purpose acquisition companies. They've raised quite a bit of money this year. We're going to find out more about these particular uh, vehicles and whether or not they make good investments. Also, we're going to look at Netflix and uh, why UBS has downgraded Netflix rating to neutral from buy. And a closer look at Huawei. So UK's mobile providers are banned from buying new Huawei 5G equipment at the end of the year. We hear about this tech war all the time. Uh, does this hammer home the, the, the fact that Huawei doesn't need the West? Because even as this is happening, Huawei reported um, impressive earnings. So all that coming your way right here on Money & Me. It is time to welcome Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. So finance companies seem to be in the news this week as they report their quarterly earnings. Taking center stage, Goldman Sachs. It easily beat analyst expectations thanks to a huge surge in trading revenue, up 93%. But we're sort of seeing different narratives for different banks. Those that are more retail-focused have to set aside big sums to offset potential losses. What do you make of the bank's earnings? I mean, you hit the nail right on the head, right? Any investment bank, which typically caters to the larger corporation, and obviously through either M&A or uh, IPOs or secondary IPOs, et cetera, they've they've had a really phenomenal quarter on the back of uh, extreme volatility in the markets, which typically tends to having market participants like, say, hedge funds or pension funds, uh, your retail investors, et cetera, be willing to cross very large bid offer spreads. And that just flows directly into the bottom line of trading desks. So whenever there's a heightened volatility, unless obviously uh, the trading desk has taken uh, their own principal position, which uh, has reduced quite substantially post the 2008 financial crisis, we typically see uh, the trading floors of banks making money. The interesting thing, though, as you rightfully mentioned, the retail banks, uh, you know, a great example is uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, JP Morgan, uh, it has a massive both retail and investment banking presence. They had good earnings on the back of the trading side, but they had to take a $9 billion credited uh, write-off. Wells Fargo had terrible earnings. They've slashed their dividends down to $0.10, all because of the fact, the uncertainty as to how bad the credit crunch is eventually going to get in the SME or in the larger market, in the larger company space. And that's something that I think even bankers or the CFOs have no idea about. So they're just taking that they're trying to take a little bit more of a prudent approach in this case. All right. And from the banks, we move now to that blank check. Uh, We've heard that term bandied about quite a bit, but I'm referring to the blank check in terms of the SPAC, the Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's having its moment, according uh, to the New York Times. So the SPAC is a shell company that raises money from public markets for the purpose of acquiring a private company. What are SPACs? How do they work? Are they good investments? Go, Arun. 
<laughs> so SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies, right? So uh, it's kind of like a brand check where traditionally a person who has some kind of, uh, you know, who has some kind of fame or some kind of investment prowess goes up to the public, uh, says that I am looking to raise capital for the purposes of acquisition, which typically is a private company. Uh, Bill Ackman of uh, Pershing Fane, uh, he made headlines uh, having raised, I think, an all-time high of $4 billion uh, through one of his, uh, through a SPAC. What is the purpose of this? Uh, this gives Bill Ackman, uh, as you were mentioning, a blank check to go out and identify private companies who want to become public in a very quick fashion. So if a traditional company wants to go private, uh, to go public, right, uh, they either can go down the path of uh, employing an investment bank uh, and going down the whole uh, horse and pony show of uh, going up to a number, number of institutional investors, trying to raise capital, forming a book, and then going about trying to raise like XYZ billions of dollars. Instead, over here through a stack, it becomes a one-stop shop. All the company needs to do, or in this case, Bill Ackman, I guess, has identified the company. They make an agreement that this is the amount of capital that I have. The SPAC, which is already publicly traded, acquires the private company, and thereby the private company in a one-stop shop has become public. This typically, so the, the if you just take a step back and go into history, uh, SPACs had a very bad reputation for being a black box where money is just siphoned off. It's, you know, in a way, a lot of money laundering happens through these vehicles. Things have changed quite substantially right now because there is some value proposition behind it. Uh, look at a couple of electric car companies recently, Fisher, Nikola. They became public through SPACs. Uh, a company like Spotify, for example, chose to go, uh, you know, the hidden option C, which is a direct listing. Traditional companies go down the IPO route, which tends to be a lot more expensive as you're employing investment banks and stuff. So there is some value proposition behind if you're a private company and you're looking for a very quick entry into the public markets, SPACs are a convenient vehicle for that. The issue always is, though, why are these companies looking for a very quick route into the public market? Mm. And easily be, you know, it's like back in the 99, the dot-com bubble, right? A lot of like cats.com, dogs.com, they were going, they were becoming public mm. at multi-billion dollar valuation. So that is something that as an investor, you need to be extremely careful about where you might not be on the wrong end of these potential pump and dump schemes, uh, which can be done through these SPAC entities. So is it fair to say that money on a SPAC is a bit of a speculative leap? So if you're, it's kind of like an all-in bet on the person who's managing the SPAC, right? So say someone like Bill Ackman, mm. a multi-billionaire running his hedge fund, uh, potentially an investor might look up to him and say, okay, this is a person whom I can potentially trust and I can run them. There's no difference in investing into a hedge fund or into a black box fund because that's exactly what it is. The only potential upside or the greed in this case is you just hope this SPAC buys a private company, uh, shares rally very quickly on the back of that news, and then you sell out quite quickly. But uh, so if you're trying to get access to a private company and you don't have channels of going to a venture capital firm for which you need to be accredited 
or, uh, you know, like you need to have a very large amount of capital uh, at stake. Mm. It could be interesting, but you never know which company the SPAC is buying out either, right? So it, it is literally an all-in play on the manager of the SPAC. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So how does a Robinhood type a retail investor get in on a SPAC? So there are listings of SPACs because they are already publicly traded. Uh, I, there are not that many in number. Uh, to give you a rough idea, I think this year there are probably about 45 or 50 SPACs, mm-hmm. which once they acquire a certain company, they'll immediately change the ticker and become, you know, uh, whatever the new ticker, the, the company's name uh they'll change the ticker to the new company's name. So from the perspective of a traditional retail investor, uh, the list of tickers is available online. You can choose to you know, buy them directly off the exchange if you want to, but know fully well that you literally have no say in which company uh, this pack is going to buy, at what valuation this pack is going to purchase it. Uh, and you're just hoping for the best uh, that the fund manager or the SPAC manager in this case is going to have a strong fiduciary responsibility with your money. So I understand SPACs as an investment vehicle or fundraising vehicle have been around for a while. Why do you think they're gaining such popularity now? So it's, I think it's like two or three pronged to this, right? Firstly, from the company's perspective, like a Fisher or Nicola, right? Hmm. They can see very clearly, they look to their right, they see Tesla, they look to their left, they see BYD share prices have gone up anywhere from 50% to 5x in the past year and a half or two years. Do they want to go down the path of trying to raise private capital? Or do they feel that this is the perfect time to jump on this bandwagon of a lot of fraught in the market, especially in the electric vehicle space, and ride on that? So from the perspective of a company, it makes a lot of sense. From the perspective of a fund manager or a SPAC manager, mm-hmm. it's also quite interesting because you have, again, it boils down to investors who have a lot of money. Where do they put money into? Mm-hmm. Cash, zero. Bonds, negative if you're in Europe or basically you know, very, very low single digits. Equities, yes, but potentially quite frothy. And you have a lot of day-to-day, uh, you know, like mark-to-market valuation. In a SPAC, when you put in money into it, firstly, the money goes into directly into interest bear. It, it goes into an interest bearing trust to begin with. After which point of time, when, uh, if and when the SPAC manager decides that, you know, XYZ company is the right private company to purchase, then they go about doing the acquisition. So you potentially get a decent upside uh, in these very frothy like dot-com markets where, a company gets announced that it's getting acquired. You suddenly see a massive pop in the share prices and you have to be relative, relatively quick in potentially getting out of the SPAC or the newly named uh, publicly traded company. So it tends, the, these entities tend to be either back in the day, they were more money laundering, plain and simple. Now it seems to be because of a lot of exuberance in the market. There's a lot of greed going on. Mm. If I want exposure to a Fisher, a Nicola, any other really, you know, sexually themed uh, private company, how do I as, an, in, as a retail investor or a public markets investor get exposure to that? The only way to do that is through SPACs because you might not have the access to private equity vehicles or venture capital vehicles. 
All right. Well, thank you for helping us understand this big boom in SPACs. And for the listener, um, here are some examples of companies that have used SPACs to go public. Virgin Galactic Holdings used a SPAC formed by Social Capital Hedosophia to bring its shares onto the open market. It happened even uh, late 2019, so pre-COVID. An electric truck company, Nikola, closed on its combination with a SPAC Vector IQ acquisition earlier this month. Let's move now to Huawei. Interesting news because the UK's mobile providers are being banned from buying new Huawei 5G equipment. After 31st December, they must also remove all the Chinese firm's 5G kit from their networks by 2027. This following sanctions imposed by Washington, which claims that Huawei poses a national security threat. This is something that Huawei denies. But embattled Chinese tech giant Huawei has reported surprisingly strong results for the first half of this year, despite challenges from US sanctions and the pandemic. It is, of course, expected to face more headwinds in coming months. But the big question, I guess, for you, um, Arun, is the UK wants it out, but its profits are up. So the world seems divided because of technology. Does Huawei really need the West? So that's an excellent question, right? And it's amazing to see like a $100 billion company uh, just being stuck in the middle of two gorillas, the US and China, and having to figure out uh, its own future, which is very, very surprising considering the fact that they have come up with fantastic products. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the consumer products uh, specifically, more on the enterprise side, fantastic products at a very reasonable price as compared to uh, the likes of Nokia and Ericsson, especially in the 5G space. I think at last count, they had something like 23,000 or 24,000 patents in this space too. So it's not just you know a typical Chinese manufacturing company, uh, an OEM manufacturer looking to just either copy or try and mass produce things, they've truly done a phenomenal job of being at the forefront of technology. But with that comes a massive issue where, because of geopolitics, uh, the company's future is largely at stake. Google, uh, you know, I think it was last year or something where the U.S. started putting in positions on technology providers to Huawei. Google had to yank its Google Play Store suite of products to them thereby leading Huawei sales in Europe to crater by like 90-95% on the smartphone category. The flip side, though, is uh, the local population of China, it being 1.3 or 1.4 billion people strong, took it upon itself to try and save uh, its own locally homegrown company. They went about buying smartphones by the truckloads, and it actually led to a spike, a crazy market share increase for Huawei at the expense of, weirdly enough, other local Chinese companies like Xiaomi or other such names, which were not affected by the U.S. regulation. So there's a lot of like push and pull uh, to, uh, against Huawei's future. What's going to be the future now? Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal guess is it's going to be extremely difficult because while the Chinese economy is growing, it's booming, that's fantastic. We're not talking about like a $5 million, $50 million, $100 million revenue company. Huawei, for future growth, it needs uh, newer markets. And if Europe and U.S. are shut to it, 
you know, you're kind of an Australian. There are various political issues with Australia, political issues with China, uh, India, uh, obviously Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, the Southeast Asian region uh, to some extent, also because of the South uh, Asian Sea. We are leading to, you know, potentially having Africa as one of the only continents or areas left. But uh, the issue with Africa is obviously there's a lack of capital over there. And that's why you're seeing, including even in like the, uh, their massive uh, initiative to connect, uh, you know, all the way from like Africa, Europe, and China, and thereby providing China providing a lot of like interest-free loans and everything. There's a lot of backlash across the globe where, uh, you know, a great example is like say Sri Lanka. Mm. Interest-free money was given for infrastructure purposes. And then suddenly five years later, when uh, the Sri Lankan airport can't service that interest, uh, China takes possession over the airport. And we've seen that happen in Africa also. So the question then becomes, coming back to the company, where does Huawei sell its products to that are still reasonably expensive, especially to telco companies, the rest of the world? Mm. And that's going to be something extremely difficult for them to be able to get over until China can start taking more of an appeasing route to whatever the world generally wants. Like, would Coca-Cola or Pepsi be where they are right now had they not been available on every second street side corner in, say, India or Malaysia or Indonesia? Probably not. So similarly, how does Huawei get around that, that get around these geopolitical issues? That's going to be the biggest question mark. All right. From Huawei and that question of what does it need to grow, let's apply that to two stocks that we've been seeing recently. UBS has cautioned that Netflix is overvalued. It's downgraded Netflix to neutral from buy. If we take a step back, Netflix is up nearly 60% this year. One of the best performers in the S&P 500, which, by the way, is down 3% for 2020. So the stock has gained about 70% of a March low, a rally that's lifted it to repeat records, widened the market's uh, company's market cap lead over Walt Disney. Um, but given that UBS cautioned that Netflix is overvalued, what do company, uh, investors need to understand about Netflix's value moving forward? Sure. So, um, if you know, if I'm not mistaken, UBS uh, mentioned Netflix as well as Spotify uh, as companies that were overvalued. And to be honest, they could have mentioned a whole host of other technology names out there, and I would be completely with them. But you know, let's let's take a look at Netflix, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. This is a company that is uh, about 220 or 240 billion dollars of market cap. It's trading at a price to book, which is probably not that relevant for a technology company at a 30, which is relatively inflated, obviously, but at a price to earnings of something like over 100. Now, the question then becomes, okay, obviously you have a COVID pandemic. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how much you binge watch television, Michelle, but I definitely do. A lot. And, And, you know, a lot of people do, right? And it makes a lot of sense from the perspective of a consumer. The issue, though, is um, how does this entity actually make money? And how does it keep me as a consumer uh, to be on the platform, to be paying those monthly subscription fees for an extended period of time? Now, binge watching is great, right? On a Saturday morning, you get get out of bed, sit on the couch and start watching television for the next six hours. It's life-affirming, yes. <laughs> it is. It's brilliant. But how did, now, how did the traditional uh, broadcasting company make money off of that? Mm. 
because they made you subscribe to their monthly services by releasing TV shows on a weekly basis. So when they started, when they wanted to create a new series or have a season of a TV show, uh, they used to obviously do all the filming in say the span of like a month or two months. And for the next six months or four months, if you're in the US, they used to start releasing the episodes on, on a weekly basis, which forced users to be tied down to that specific channel for an extended period of time. Now, don't take me wrong. I love Netflix's business model of providing stuff online. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting where now you're seeing some Netflix shows, like quite popular ones, are starting to go down the path of weekly subscriptions. Because they're seeing that the amount of capital required to create a new show is not a couple of million dollars. It's tens of millions or up to even hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. So they need... So, on the one hand, they know that they are having a lot of sunk cost. They are playing the data game beautifully well because they know exactly what the user in which country, what type of user is going to be viewing their shows. I mean, who's not watched criminal TV shows in the past couple of months, right? Like they've taken the world by storm and they've maximized it. So now that you watched one of them, now literally I can go to Netflix and I can see 20 different TV shows created uh, along the same genre. So they're getting instant feedback from data. So phenomenally well done on the aspect of the business model regarding that. How do they keep subscribers for an extended period of time on their platform without having to spend copious amounts of money to ensure that the content can be kept relevant, can be kept fresh? That's a big question mark. And honestly, valuations are just through the roof for the company. But then again, so it is for so many other companies it just, you know, as a Robinhood investor or a traditional retail investor, mm. I go about my day-to-day -day basis. I see what I'm using quite extensively. I'm using Netflix for many hours in a week. Okay, this must be a good stock. Let me buy it. Mm. And it's worked out quite well for investors to date. Indeed. But unlike a media business, Netflix is not a traditional business. It accounts for, what, 35% of internet downstream traffic in the U.S., um, there the emerging markets to consider in terms of overhead growth. So given, you know, the, the 4 billion broadband accounts in the world, is, is there plenty of room for it to grow? Excellent point. International expansion is something that has been talked a lot about uh, when Netflix was trading back at $100. And now it's $525, give or take. With a decent success rate in international expansion, don't take me wrong, the question is, how much has that been priced in? The other question is, mm. people in Singapore are paying like, I think, $15, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for a monthly, uh, for the more, uh, the more standard monthly package. In the US, they managed to increase prices also uh, to some extent, uh, coming in close to like $15 to $20. But if you, go to start, if you start going to developing countries like India, uh, Brazil, the price point that they can command is substantially lower. The kind of localized content that is required in those countries requires a lot of initial capital expenditure, mm -hmm. while not knowing whether they will be able to recuperate that much amount of money. And Netflix relies a lot on the fact that uh, countries have very strong broadband. So, you know, imagine watching uh, Snowpiercer or, or like uh, another show mm -hmm. where every five minutes, there's like a lag in your system. Like, you know, the, the screen stops for a couple of seconds, the disconnection happens. In Singapore, you're obviously spoiled, right? Because 
if my television stops even for like a microsecond, <laughs> I'm on my phone to my uh, internet provider and unleashing hell on these guys. It doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's difficult. So mm. I think there are other issues that Netflix has to deal with. Is the market size there? Most definitely. Mm. But is competition coming up? Look at HBO. Look at Disney+. Plus. These are companies that have, especially Disney, they have a massive, massive amount of content already in their ecosystem. And for them, for a, you know, an average user to just know that Marvel comics are going to be on this, uh, a bunch of Star Wars are going to be on this uh, form of communication or form of uh, delivery of programs, I might decide to go onto that platform. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of new shows that people might not have come up with. Great so point. it's something to be, it's a big question mark. Good points. Before we let you go, Arun, um, you know, we're still on this topic of what stocks offer great value and growth. So in terms of investment merits, we're looking for scalable business, recurring revenue, long runway for growth, decent valuation. Uh, this particular stock has been on my stocks to watch list for a while in 2020. So I wanted to ask you what you think of iFast. They run an internet-based investment products distribution platform and they provide a, a range of investment products and services to clients, corporate and, and retail investors as well. Uh, I understand that they their second quarter results are going to be released 25th July. So I thought I'd ask uh, in the context of their first quarter results being quite good. What do you think of this company? Sure. Uh, so iFast has done phenomenally well in the technology space being listed in Singapore. Uh, they've had very decent growth uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, currently valued, I think, at close to like just a shade under half a billion dollars. But uh, I, I think it's it, it pays attention to notice that the share price has nearly doubled uh, just since you know the March lows, primarily on the back of the news that it is one of the contenders for a digital wholesale banking license that's going to be provided by MAS. So uh, that is obviously quite different from its current uh, tech-savvy brokerage model. Uh, have the share prices run a little bit ahead of themselves? Potentially, because currently the share is trading at like over a five-year high at over a dollar sixty uh, as of uh, yesterday, at least. So the recent massive share increase, a share price rally, on the back of just being a contender for a digital wholesale banking license, with the uncertainty of not knowing will they actually be the ones who get the license. Will they be the ones that are able to compete against the likes of Ant Financial, Singtel, and a whole host of other much larger competitors in this space? And to be completely honest, question, part question C, whether this whole digital wholesale banking license will be able to disrupt the incumbents of DBS, OCBC, UOB that have an extremely strong hold on the Singapore market already. Hmm. I think those are a lot of questions that have to be answered and I, I don't think the short-term quarterly release will be the ones that will provide the information. Mm-hmm. I think it's more to see in the next couple of years mm-hmm. how and eventually the whole digital banking space shapes up in Singapore 
that will lead investors to either make decent returns on the stock or not. It is always fascinating crawling into the mind of Arun Pai to learn how a seasoned investor thinks through things. Arun, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. This is Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.